Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petros Podcast. This is episode 75 of the Petros Podcast, and it is Mar- Monday, March 13, 2023. Um, this podcast is a little bit different. Um, I have I have a, a really special treat and guest um, on the phone, so hopefully this audio works out okay. Bear, w- bear with me because it's a, a fantastic guest and a complete blast from the past. Um, this is a former member of parliament and um, somebody who's also currently running John Grogan um, in the UK. And I actually interned for John Grogan. This was my first, uh, this was my only internship, my political internship in college. Um, so hello, John, and welcome to the Petronas podcast. Uh, hello, Trisha. You were obviously the best intern ever, but don't <laughs> tell the others that. Absolutely. Well, hey, I actually know I was a pretty good intern because I answered a lot of a lot of phone calls and had to do a lot of things. But it was it was actually really fun. And um, John, at the time, you were a you were a labor prominent labor backbencher for and you were uh, the Selby constituency is what you represented. I, I remember going to uh, PMQs a couple or prime minister questions a couple times uh, right as Tony Blair was leaving and right as um, Gordon Brown was stepping in literally while I was there in summer of 2007 um, and you were uh, you were on the radio a lot there was lots happening in the space yes so those were I was the member of parliament uh, Selby as you said which is in the north of England uh, so halfway between London and uh, Edinburgh really and uh, all those years uh, under Tony Blair and then through the uh, Iraq war, and then there was another prime minister called Gordon Brown, and then uh, Labour lost in 2010, uh, and uh, we've been out of power ever since. And I, I've since fought a, uh, another constituency here in the sort of industrial north of Yorkshire uh, uh, called Keighley. Uh, and uh, now we're, we're still in opposition, but hopeful that we'll form the next government. And I personally have won four elections, lost four elections so the next one my younger brother tells me is uh, the side <laughs> and it's always been uh, i've never woken up on election morning knowing that i've won because i've always fought highly marginal areas i've sometimes woken up and known i've definitely lost uh, but uh, it gives you a, a, a adrenaline uh, rush if you like uh, i can't imagine fighting a side street I can, I can only imagine. And I think this is I, one, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast because I think you've listened to it. Um, obviously, I interned for you, so you know where I stand on things on. That was a long time ago, uh, but on on politics yeah. and you've listened to the podcast and I really do care about the en- energy and the economy um, and yeah. really having frank discussions. And I think you are a perfect guest to talk about a number of things. So um, I kind of want to just start this off, you know, initially of I always kind of do a, a market timestamp. Obviously, the thing that's dominating the headlines, and I spent all of you know last night um, watching it, and early this morning, and then um, all through this morning, the SBB, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, fallout, and then subsequent bailout, which is not what uh, this government wants to call it, but that's what it is. Um, subsequent bailout. I believe HSBC has bought the UK division 
of um, of SVB for one pound. Um, so a whole lot of money there. Um, and everyone's sort of trying to stem a wider fallout. And the reality is that the fallout has actually just been in, in the stocks tanking. Um, but the, the market sort of is pricing in, well, the stocks are going to tank, uh, but the government's going to say your deposits are okay. And that being said, what we've seen in the market, well, obviously the, the market was down massively this morning, um, has yep. since recovered a little bit. Um, last week, we were thinking the Fed was going to have a 50 basis point, basis point rate hike, and now they're pricing out uh, the rate hike completely. We're seeing um, 10-year yields drop. We're seeing 30-year mortgages drop. Um, so it's 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 really crazyville. It has impacted oil prices a little. We're looking at or just under seventy five bucks for WTI, around just under eighty two bucks for Brent. We're hanging at around two sixty for Henry Hub. And nat gas prices in Europe, you guys are at six sixteen fifty nine. And we are definitely, you know, of the things I want to talk about. I would love to, you know, get your comments on SVB if you would like. But I really want to talk about. The British economy, energy, what's going on with the grid and stuff like that. So um, if you have thoughts on the SVB thing, I would love to hear it. Yeah, well, I think we all woke up uh, this morning, uh, listened to the radio, watching television, uh, and we've been briefed over the weekend that uh, by numerous commentators that the Treasury officials here were burning the midnight oil. Uh, and actually, to be fair, even though I'm, you know, for the opposition, I think the government has done a pretty good job in 48 hours solid, as you say, getting HSBC, uh, which is certainly the biggest bank in Britain and indeed uh, in, in much of Europe, to uh, take over and, uh, and to do it uh, uh, without cost to the British taxpayer. Uh, uh, obviously, it's a much smaller bank in terms of the British economy uh then it, it's impact in the states but nevertheless there's a, a 250 mainly tech companies who are customers of the bank and uh british government british uh institutions like uh, financial institutions around the world are trying to encourage some of these companies some of the most dynamic innovative entrepreneurial uh, uh companies around and there was a real danger this week that uh, some of them wouldn't be able to pay the wages and they'd be calling in receivers and administrators. So that hasn't happened. And obviously the worry now is, is there any other banks uh, uh, in similar situations or is this a one-off? Uh, and if it is a one-off, um, uh, as I say, I think a pretty good job has been done here and, and uh, it doesn't seem to have... Uh, put at risk any taxpayers' money. So um, we'll have to see what happens in the next few weeks because obviously there, there are memories of about the time we, you were doing that internship, yep. really, uh, uh, what was happening in London and New York and around the world. Uh, but uh, hopefully this is an isolated case this time. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because um, I, I think if it was isolated, we wouldn't have needed the. Um, obviously, it's the the risk was in other banks, um, or they yes. wouldn't have had to do the, the the bailout that they did, especially here in the U.S. And and yes. my immediate thinking was that I, you know, I ha I was not familiar with Silicon Valley Bank, um, you know, prior to a week ago, not intimately familiar no. by any means. I don't think most people were. It's actually a fairly large bank, and I think what is interesting and the stuff that we're not hearing a lot of clarity on. I know that. Um, there was a there, there's been some bank reports that have went around. There's a JP Morgan report that I was sent. And I just want to quote it because I think it says that they talk about it was in sort of a league of its own. And they say, quote, a high level of loans plus securities um, as a percentage of deposits and very low reliance on stickier retail deposits as a share of total deposits. 
Bottom line, SIBB carried a distinct and riskier niche than other banks, setting itself up for large potential capital shortfalls in case of rising interest rates, deposit outflows, and forced asset sales. And so that I thought was interesting is that I and they, there's some charts in here that are really telling in terms of um, the uninsured, basically the uninsured share of deposits that they had. But uh, they, everybody keeps blaming this and saying, well, you know, really, right now we have the Biden administration saying, well, we're going to we're promising these deposits and we're going to step up banking regulations. But then you have this other side of the argument that says, well, we don't really need banking regulations because um, or we shouldn't necessarily need banking regulations because this was a the banks are healthy. And that's what we've been told for months and months and months is that the banks are healthy. They're much better than they were in 2008. And so we won't have these issues. And that the this Silicon Valley Bank had actually invested in, um, got a ton of tech money. And then they took that money and they put it into um, securities. And they, they took it. And what we're hearing is that while those they clearly didn't watch the rise in interest rate and the rise in interest rate that the Fed's increasing interest rates has broken something. And this goes back to what a lot of Democrats and, and politicians and folks are saying of, hey, slow down on rate hikes. Um, and that's across the political spectrum. But it's it's very frustrating to me of hearing, OK, well, now we need banking regulations um, when clearly the, the bank itself didn't. the folks on the bank, the board, I mean, this is tech. These are folks that are supposed to be knowing what's going on within the market. And so if I, as a average person, has been watching inflation for over two years and Fed rate hikes pretty closely and knowing how to move my money around and get the best for my interest rates and high yield savings accounts and everything, I'm pretty shocked that um, Silicon Valley Bank isn't intelligent enough to understand when rate hikes are moving and what their you know, their liabilities are. So I think there's an issue there that these are treasuries. So they're supposed to be this is supposed to be fluid and secure and we shouldn't have issues. But clearly um, there's some management. Um, there's the relationship that they have with the tech sector, that they have a ton of money from tech um, and that how they uh, how they go about their business as well. But it's not typically a normal bank. They also are getting fees and all kinds of stuff from from how they're, I mean, mostly not every company has all their assets in one bank. And a lot of these uh, venture capital groups did have all their assets in one bank. And that's because they also had relationships where they were doing loan or uh, advising services and everything, I think, with them. Um, do you have any, I mean, is that how you understand it? Do you also sort of agree with that? Is that how people are thinking about it over there? Well, I think the impact on, on future debates in London will be, and you, you make some interesting points about uh, is it, uh, uh, regulation, and you're saying it, it's really to do with bad banking and so on, and, and uh, people not keeping their eye on the ball. But there's a continuing debate in London about uh, following Brexit and so on, and obviously the City of London, very important to the British economy. Uh, there are some who suggest, well, now this gives us a chance to uh, break free of, uh, rather than shadow EU regulation, shouldn't we have a uh, go from our buccaneering financial sector and start looking at some of the rules that were put on after 2007 and 8 and uh, should we start relaxing these and I suppose uh, this is uh, uh, the effects of the last 48 hours might be to just uh, move the debate a little well, well let's be cautious in doing that uh, and uh, um, we don't want to uh, any way affect the prospect of economic recovery by um, uh, deregulating again and, and risking uh, um, further collapses. So I, I think 
uh, yeah, but I think it'll be that's how it will impact on the political debate here. There'll be some who will say, yeah, we we need to make London again the buccaneering financial capital of the world and uh, get rid of the dead hand of European bureaucracy. And I tend to the more cautious approach myself. And you are a, I mean, London is a, I mean, next to New York. Um, and formerly, I would I would argue, formerly at Hong Kong, yeah. I mean, London and New York are still the financial capitals of the world. So I know despite yeah. Brexit, you guys are still very much at the center, um, at the center of that. And yeah. so there are systemic impacts to that. So I, I guess this would be, and this is a pretty evolving thing. So it's, it's uh, I think yeah. people always give advice on, you know, you don't try to dive into something when um, it's just beginning. So, you know, we can probably, this is going to be an evolving situation that I'll be talking about in the podcast a lot and with clients on, okay. and I'm sure you on, on political side, but that does get into the economy. And as you mentioned, it does get into the UK economy. And, you know, I was in the UK at the beginning of December. Um, I know we missed each other because uh, there was a, I believe there was a train strike going on. Um, but I was, yeah, so that's how, that's why I missed each other. There's a lot of strikes going on in, in um, across the UK for a number of different reasons and actually in, in France as well. Um, and that t- that's a piece of the economy. Um, but, you know, the impact of this, you're, you're mentioning, you know, regulations and, and obviously people needing capital and money. But the UK economy, I mean, from the outside looking in and listening to your, uh, you know, the Bank of England, which I think has been pretty forthright in explaining and talking about, you know, one that where inflation was at at the end of last year, the fact that basically saying that the UK was going to go into recession and sort of watching the whole thing um, has been has been, you know, very interesting. And then going over there. Um, I did notice the same thing. It was sort of a, the, it wasn't ripping off the band-aid of COVID, but there was definitely a lot of revenge spending going on. There was definitely revenge tourism. I was in Oxford for the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies Oil Day, and the the price of the hotels was just out of this world. And everything was booked. Every Every place to eat was fully booked. Every pub was booked. And it didn't quite have the sort of charm that Oxford normally has. And then I went to, to went to London and every taxi driver told me the same thing, which was that it was the best year they've ever had. And partly was that was because they lost so many drivers. And so there was so much demand on existing drivers, but they all sort of said that, you know, they were really, really concerned about the economy and they thought that spending was going to drop off considerably. And I mean, I was in shops and I was hearing it from people within the shop saying, joking about putting all this stuff on their credit cards. And it just seemed like this was sort of something that was building up. Um, and obviously energy prices being very high throughout the course of the year and just this, you know, double digit inflation, um, really, really serious. So I'd love, would really love your your thoughts um and feelings on and obviously i know you have you know political feelings on it but just what what is the state of the uk economy and what's going on with inflation and then we can sort of go back into talking about war and energy and stuff as well but you know have at it from there so the uk was pretty slow to bounce back from covid and that may uh obviously there was the uh the brexit factor as well which most economists would would say did shave off two, three, even four uh, percent over time of, of, of our GDP. So that was quite a, a big shock. Um, so we were quite slow, but we grew a lot last year while you were coming. You know, we were up amongst the uh, top growers in the G7 last year. But all the projections are that this year we'll be back at the uh, bottom of the league. And we're, we're yet to get our economy as big as it was uh, pre-COVID. But we're not in recession. Uh, the you know we've just managed to avoid that over the last few months, uh, and the hopes are that inflation uh, will fall quite a bit this year, 
and uh, so I think most people would be slightly more hopeful than they were when you visited in December about inflation numbers and, and uh, uh, growth numbers, uh, neither of which will be brilliant this year, but will probably be better than we expected then. Now, there is on the left of British politics, and indeed on the right, there is, you know, the big debate is how do we get growth? And we're just coming up to a budget uh, on Wednesday, which is the annual budget, uh, big statement from the government, comparable to the State of the Union in, in some ways. Uh, uh, and so that's just a couple of days away now. Uh, and the Conservative Party has obviously gone through a number of different leaders over the last few years. Uh, uh, your listeners will remember Boris Johnson, uh, possibly less remember Liz Truss, who only lasted about 40 days. And, and her prescription for growth was uh, big tax cuts uh, uh, will drive the economy. And she did that uh, uh, for a brief period. But there was real problems with the markets uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the UK's finances and so on. So she was replaced by her party. Uh, and we've now got Rishi Sunak, who is more central, centrist in outlook. Um, and so, uh, but you know, growth is the great um, uh, political debate, as I said. On the left, there's direct comparisons now being drawn with Biden and the IRA Act. Uh, Europe is waking up to the, the scale of that. And also the fact that, quite frankly, it's pretty protectionist as well. Uh, and so the, uh, both in the EU and on the opposition benches, there is talk of uh, similar big injections, uh, largely aimed at renewables, uh, even though uh, on the uh, labour side, uh, um, creating not, not just giving loans to private companies, but actually setting up a great British energy, or rather on the model of the uh, uh, Norwegian energy company Equinor, although not as big, and, and taking stakes uh, or partnerships with the private sector, possibly uh, partly to do with um, uh, riskier technologies such as Tidal and Wave and so on, and uh, uh, um, uh, some wind, particularly based on, on platform-based platform wind and so on. So to try and uh, crowd in, if you like, some private investment. So those... Those are the political debates about growth and the outlook is, as I say, not quite as bad as it was, uh, particularly as well as when we come on to talk about energy. You know, the winter has generally been mild here and in the UK and in uh, Europe, we haven't had power cuts or anything. My, my background, as you know, when I used to work in Selby was the coal industry. Uh, I represented the biggest coal mine that was then there in uh, the whole of the United Kingdom. That's now closed. There's no there's no coal now in the UK. But we did, coal did come onto the grid for the first time last week for a few hours um, because the grid was under pressure. But generally, the mild winter has meant that we haven't had power cuts, which has definitely helped the economy. Absolutely. And I think for the whole of, the whole of Europe, and you bring up a number of really fantastic points I would like to... I would love to discuss, um, but what we can just start with, we can just work our way backwards because I want to hit on 
you know, the definitely the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which I, I yeah. kind of think is almost comedic that it's called I not comedic. Um, and I don't mean it in the sense, yeah. but, you know, for Brit uh, and for, for Irish people, when you call it the IRA, it just seems uh, it seems uncomfortable. Yes. But anyways, it's the yes. Inflation Reduction Act, which is not really disinflationary, given that um, it's a lot of spending. But it is something that I, I agree with you. There's a lot of folks in Europe waking up to it. Um, and so uh, we can talk about that. Liz Trust, I think, and the a lot of the blame on Brexit, I think, for uh, lack of lack of people in the economy. I, I did hear that a lot uh, of folks of saying, well, we because of Brexit, we don't have enough people here. And, you know, there's something I was explaining to a lot of folks and even taxi drivers when I was in London was that, you know, the whole world doesn't have enough people to work. Yes. And, you sure. know, the U.S. doesn't have enough and we didn't have Brexit. So I don't think it's it's just a Brexit thing. But with regards to your energy, and I think um, there's a great it's called I am uh, it's it, basically, you can do Google National Grid Live or look up I am Grid, I am Kate, and you can this uh, you can see the UK grid on a daily basis, similar that we have at the Energy Information Administration. And you can look at it over time as well, and it breaks down renewables and everything. But I pay a lot of attention to grids and renewables and what's actually in them, because given everything that happened really in 2020 and 2021, when your energy prices started spiking in the UK in 2021, well before the war in Ukraine. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because I was following what was going on within Ofgem. And, you know, obviously that they, they came out and said, hey, you know, everybody has an opportunity to buy all this stuff. And I was looking at your prices then in 2021 and about 25% of the electricity price in the UK was basically, um, I mean, it was basically an ESG tax. It was for environment and, and everything. And it seemed a huge amount at the time. And then obviously prices went up and that was because, you know, the uh, demand for energy from China and Asia um, and the cold, you know, the uh, hot summer that they had, the previous cold winter they had at the end of 2020, the hot summer that they had and sort of all sort of build up. And by the time we get to the fall of sort of 2021, we're in this, so we're in this energy crisis where China's facing actual blackouts and um, Europe is the, the renewables um, in the grid weren't, I mean, they, they've caused some peak issues and reliability issues. And so when, it, when you look at the grid for um, the UK, you can see it's declined in terms of power generation. And I'm looking at BP data from last year for 2021. So you're about 350 terawatt hours, about 124 of those, uh, about 124 of that is gas. And 117 terawatt hours is renewables, and that's mostly wind. And so apparently, like yesterday and the other day, um, wind it must be blowing a lot because the grid the grid is is high is high in wind. But then when the wind is not blowing, then gas has to take over. And I've uh, I don't love a lot of policy books, but I am I was just going through this this book called Not Zero by Ross Clark, and it is a very UK specific book on UK energy policies. And something he mentions a couple times, and he's a I, I believe he's a journalist, but something he mentions, and I think he does a good job of explaining, is the peaking. And that's something a lot of us on in the energy space, we understand that, you know, when when the wind or the solar or the renewables in the grid are not working, that then you have, you know, you turn on the coal-fired power generation. This is what happens in, this is what they do in China, largely with coal-fired, but when the renewables aren't working, that's what they're relying on. Whereas you guys have gas. But the trouble is, is that to keep the, that's not how the uh, those systems were designed. So the, the cost gets really expensive. And I know everyone likes to blame, you know, um, 
traditional fuels like natural gas and petroleum and coal um, and think that the renewables are going to save them. But it's interesting that the cost, the way your grid is structured is when the wind is not blowing, you have to use the gas, um, which works out fine. But you end up paying a lot more because you're not using the gas and you're not using the gas all the time. And you have to compensate the owners for those gas plants. And so it's partly why the cost is really, really expensive. And then when you don't have enough, um, you're also pulling in, obviously, the gas was too expensive during um, last year. And so then everything was being used. And a lot of over the basically the entire world, not just Europe, um, diesel was used instead of gas, which drove up diesel prices as, and oil prices as well, which is a, a significantly dirtier fuel to use. So, I mean, I would love your thoughts on that and, you know, personally, and just how you think about that. And obviously, given that you come from a coal background, you're kind of like an old school Democrat. Um, so I don't know how much you've sold your soul on the energy side, but I would love to, you know, unpack that a little bit. Okay, well, you give a very good description of the, the UK energy market and basically electricity is priced as you indicate there at the sort of marginal the last uh, provider on the on the network the marginal is priced there and so it's all priced pretty well by the price of gas um, and uh, throughout most of Europe there is a similar system as well uh, and so this has massively impacted uh, over the last uh, six months uh, and most states in Europe have been giving uh, consumer subsidies just to uh, over the last six months, just to ensure that people can still feed their kids and and heat their homes and so on and things. So there is, uh, though it's not much uh, in the political debate here, but there is a consultation going on at the moment from the Department of Business, looking at the energy market going forward and looking at whether you should decouple. Uh, the wholesale market really and uh do the pricing in a different way because the actual marginal cost of renewables is now much much lower uh, than the price that is offered to the grid and um, we've now got the biggest wind farm offshore wind farm in the world off the north sea and uh, most of the supply chain by the way comes from the scandinavian countries uh, and that's uh, another reason I think why uh, the opposition would want to uh, have an inter public intervention so in the energy market. That's uh, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, I would like to go into that because I think that's what we hear yeah. a lot is that you know how yeah. wonderful wind is, and and I've been pretty vocal about this. You know, I, I am I am pretty anti wind and solar for a couple of reasons, and one yes. is that they are very expensive, and I I always hear folks talk about the well they're so cheap. But but yes. that doesn't take into account the cost of the building. So they've been subsidized massively from the front end of how they were built yeah. and wherever they were built all the way till they're put into the grid. And the problem is, by the time the energy goes from that wind turbine all the way to your light bulb in your house and you're plugging into this phone that you're talking on, it's lost a lot of energy. And so somebody bears the cost for that. And if you look at UK electricity generation, it's declined. And it's counterintuitive given that the that UK has signed on to, you know, the, has actually signed to legally go net zero by 2050, which I think is pretty damning for the economy. But if you, the actual electricity generation has declined. And if you are trying to go net zero, you have to actually electrify your country. So you can't really decline your electricity generation. Everything would have to be electrified. So it's a little bit counterintuitive there. But I always hear, and you guys do have a ton you know, I'm not saying it's not windy offshore, but I always hear, you know, when we look at levelized cost of energy, it doesn't include 
one, it doesn't include the, the front end stuff. And then it, there's a lot of subsidization. And so by the time it gets to you, the consumer, we'll always we hear as well, it's expensive for gas. Well, if we got the real story of if the gas was allowed to run freely and you can't, the wind doesn't run freely. And apparently when you put two wind turbines next to each other, they eat each other's wind. So, you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, when people talk about downspacing in the oil patch and if you're putting wells too tightly together, you know, they're pulling on each other in certain rock that, you know, in certain rock that is really good, you can do that because you need to extract more more crude oil. But in wind, it does seem that the case is, and, and I could be wrong and I, I'm, would love scientists to jump in on this, but when you're putting a bunch of windmills next to each other, that they're actually sort of eating that wind. So you're not as getting as much as just one turbine. So I'm not, I'm just wanting to press on this issue because it's something we hear a ton about how amazing and positive is you, I hear on the BP earnings call. And it's definitely something that the UK has really, really pushed is to go into offshore wind. And that sounds really great. But when the wind's not blowing, which is what happened in the fall of 2021, when you guys had the most renewables in your grid from a capacity standpoint, but the wind didn't blow and the sun didn't shine and the rain didn't fall. And so you didn't have the renewables weren't weren't available. And so then you had to use the other stuff. And when the other stuff, you're not using it consistently, then that cost gets ratcheted up. So I would love, you know, I'm sure people are thinking about this, but it doesn't seem to be in a realistic manner. And I would love to just, you know, the realistic example, especially because you are on the labor side, how are you personally thinking about this? And how, I guess, is the labor party thinking about this? Well, you're right to say there's a lot of public subsidy uh, involved in uh, making the renewables work, whether that's particularly wind, uh, which has been the big contributor, largely offshore, but I think there's a move now onshore right. uh, to some extent solar. But there's a, there, there, uh, there, there, you know, there is a massive public subsidy. You're definitely right. Now the costs have come right down, and as the industry has matured, uh, and the debate uh, in uh, in the UK, or part of the debate is, you know, do you need to uh, offer um, the renewable companies. Obviously, they all say you do, that we, we want these high prices because otherwise we won't invest anymore. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that you know, the industry is now getting to the, to, the, uh, to the level of maturity that that needs to be challenged a little bit, really. And uh, uh, the, as I said, the marginal cost now of producing a lot of renewable uh, power, which isn't going to be, it's not going to be 100%, but it, it's growing. And there are other, there are other renewable technologies, uh, such as tidal and wave, which we haven't exploited uh, uh, to a full extent yet. And together with, as I say, there's platform wind, which is slightly different from offshore wind. You put big platforms in the North Sea and so on and things which is a, another emerging technology. We, we do have ambitious goals, really. I mean, we're talking, you said 2050 to decarbonize the British economy, but the electricity sector, there's an argument between the political parties of 2035 or 2030, really. So yep. we're really talking about very, very uh, uh, times that are very on the close and horizon. They're not a long way away. There's not, but there's not... There's not concerns that, you know, that I mentioned that your your electricity capacity generation is decreasing. You're only 30, 350 terawatt hours 
in, in total, you don't have any coal, you barely have any gas, your actual contributions to global CO2 emissions yeah. are very, very small. So it kind of seems yeah. like the UK is killing themselves and the economy and the cost of the consumer is massive and the cost of the country is massive. So I know everyone talks yeah. really lofty about, yes, the marginal cost has come down, but the marginal cost somebody has to pay for it and then you have to bring it into the grid and then you lose a lot of energy because that's just the nature of it um and it's not it's not high density you know this is not high btu energy like coal like natural gas like oil and so when you transport you know when you transfer this energy you lose a lot of it and so there is a cost to that and it just seems like when we have this conversation in europe and i'd love for listeners to understand this that UK, if you're not contributing that much to emissions, you've definitely outsourced a lot of your emissions to China and anywhere else that's producing your stuff because you're not producing it yourself anymore. And there's an impact to the economy there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we want to produce more stuff uh, here. And, you know, that's why I was saying that in terms of the, the supply chain, we want more of the supply chain uh, to be uh, uh, in the former industrial north. I mean, there is still a manufacturing tradition in the UK. It hasn't disappeared right? totally. But you're right, you're right to say... Uh, that um, the only way this will work is by producing more electricity. And in, in some of our neighbouring European countries, in Norway, you're up to about 80%, I think, electric cars and so on and things. And they are, like us, uh, slowly, obviously, the, the wealth of Norway built on oil and gas. Uh, and they've a, they've a slightly longer time frame of phasing out oil and gas uh, oil and gas are going to be important in the UK economy. We've still got quite a lot of gas in the North Sea, by the way. About half of the gas we use we, is produced uh, in the North Sea and will be for some years ahead. Um, so there's all of that there, but uh, uh, and, but in the very in the you know now investing in new renewables is a very mature technology. Is wind and offshore wind and so on and things. So the capital costs are a lot less than they were. Uh, 10 years ago even and so yeah you do have the prospect of, of uh, cheap renewable energy i don't think that's a a, a myth uh, on some of the more mature technologies that's definitely potentially possible here now will that support and can that support industrialization because that that is an issue i really have in terms of there's a reason why china has largely coal now they don't I mean, most of their grid is 70% of their grid is is coal and they produce things. Yeah. They make the t-shirts, the iPhones, everything that we buy, they make it. Yeah. They don't make that with, yeah. they have a little bit of wind and solar, but that's not how they're making stuff. And so I do have a concern when we all talk about, um, you know, decoupling and supply chains and wanting to make stuff. Is there recognition, especially in the North where you're at, that, you know, you may not be, we would, you would need to continue and not get rid of all the natural gas within your grid because that may need to support um, the industrial sector and the and the reliability and yes. that it's not just making sure. things but it's also energy security um, and y- if you guys are you know the UK has probably went further than any country in terms of that you know the push to really decarbonize as quickly as you're trying to decarbonize which you know I don't think is actually going to happen because I think something's going to break from an economic standpoint but you guys have you know legally you're trying to really push the envelope on that and to me, this gets to the question of energy security and what happens when, you know, if if you believe that, you know, the weather and climate could be as bad as predicted and that we don't go to, to 1.5 degrees and therefore you have severe weather, the stuff that you're putting into your grid, wind, solar, renewables, 
electric vehicles does not do well in extreme temperatures. So it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me in terms of building a resilient, hardy economy to, to handle this. Um, and, you know, that's something that never gets talked about either is how well does the EV do, does it, how well does it do in, and you guys are a smaller country, you drive shorter distances. It's very, very different than here. Um, but is that something being thought about? Uh, you, yes, I think it, it is. I mean, obviously, the, the other technology we haven't mentioned yet, which uh, is in the States to some degree, uh, in Scandinavia to some degree, and we're just beginning to roll it out, is carbon capture and storage, uh, which it could, uh, which is in, in being uh, used in, in some countries on a, on a commercial basis. We've got the. We've mentioned North Sea a number of times. You know, for for decades we've been talking in the north of England, uh, which, uh, it, as I say, is still a manufacturing area of piping lots of our emissions under the North Sea. And there's just the beginnings of the first projects uh, to do that. Uh, and obviously, if we could crack that, that um, uh, would enable the use of gas uh, for much longer, while still you know, still uh, making meeting our international obligations. I think there is a, and I, obviously there's a debate in every country about uh, global warming and climate change and so on. And I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm very pragmatic about it. But we we've, we've we've made these commitments. We're only, a, as you say, a small nation. You've got to take into account certainly offshoring our. Uh, carbon emissions because if uh, right. that's all we're doing we're achieving, we're achieving nothing uh, and uh, but I don't think uh, in any European country uh, the electorate particularly the young electorate is going to uh, allow us to not treat these goals pretty seriously really and uh, it's been a fundamental change over the last 10-15 years that most uh, uh, centre-right centre-left governments right. in, in Europe uh, 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 regard these goals as ones that are uh, international commitments that we've made and uh, that we have to stick to. No, and I think you're right. I mean, I, and I appreciate that explanation and that 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 frankness and honesty, because I think that um, it's, I don't think it's completely dissimilar here in the U.S. that we, I don't, be pre-Biden administration, I don't think you necessarily, you could be a Democrat that uh, believed in oil and gas or was okay with oil and gas. Um, now you can't. I, I think it's pretty difficult. I mean, it's very much a, you know, it's a faux pas to, to you can't be on the left and, and be pro-oil and gas, and which is hard because we have, uh, we're the number one oil and gas producer in the world. Um, but I do think this, this outsourcing of emissions, and this is where, you know, I don't even try to spend too much time on the debate of, of you know, climate and everything, because it does seem like, you know, the UK and Europe have sort of made their bed and now they're going to lie in it in terms of falling on the cross for, um, for emissions. And that, you know, and there are repercussions. We saw that with the Volkswagen scandal. Um, the fact that, you know, we, you know, here in the US, we have the highest, you know, air emission standards in the world for NOx and SOx, for nitrogen oxide and sulfur dioxide, um, which is partly why we don't ha didn't have a lot of diesel run cars. 
Um, but in Brit in Europe, you there was a push for you know 10, 15 years ago, as you explained, yep. uh, over yep. miles per gallon and CO two versus the actual emissions. And so you know there is a bit of a whack a mole in terms of okay, well you know we we got our miles yep. per gallon down, but we we have other we have other stuff in the air and we have other pollutants. And I think the interesting thing is that when we start getting to the emissions thing, and this is a long game, um, but the you know the European Central Bank, I pre-war in Ukraine in, you know, 2020 and 2021, you know, was articulating very clearly that they needed to look through, basically, they had to look through inflation and they were going to absorb inflation because they had to have the energy transition. And so you had your, you had your central bank, which, you know, I, I don't think that should be the role is to be working on energy, you know, but they were clearly saying, hey, we're going to have inflation because we have to have this energy transition. Um, and there are obviously huge ramifications for that um, be, in terms of costs and what this goes on to the consumer and everything. But it, it, it does get me to this point of when we're talking about, you know, pushing this stuff into the grid, you know, the implications for this war. Um, and I would love to touch on that, but and yes. we can come back to that. Um, but one of the biggest th winners from all of this has this war has been China. Um, and that is because Europe has purchased, um, there's an 86% increase in solar purchases from China to Europe over the course of 2022 in just the first nine or 10 months of 2022, which is kind of, you know, it's amazing because, you know, Europe is supposed to be a bastion of democracy and of human rights. And it's really sad because not only are you outsourcing the CO2 emissions that everybody claims they want to get rid of um, and it's just playing whack-a-mole um, and buying it from China, but these solar panels come from the province of Xinjiang. They do come from forced labor. They do come from um, free to forced labor. There, there are internment camps in the province of Xinjiang. There are all kinds of human rights issues within China and they are produced from coal. And so the life cycle emissions aren't even being you know accounted for. Um, and I just find it a little, you know, it, this is a kind of a separate angle on the energy side, but it definitely gets into the energy security side a little bit as well. And the fact that Europe seems just very okay with buying windmills and solar panels from, you know, China and sort of trying to worry about, you know, that stuff later. And yet, you know, they look to the U.S. and say, hey, we want to measure your emissions on your gas um, now that we're importing your natural gas. Um, and it just seems a little bit counterintuitive to actually having stability uh, for energy. Well, I, I suppose uh, that's a very, a very good critique uh, of uh, European government's decisions over the winter, but I suppose the counter would be, and I, which just touch on the war, really, I, I, I mean, uh, European governments have been under tremendous pressure, uh, you know, six months ago, would they be able to keep the lights on? Uh, right. They were desperately stockpiling gas. Uh, and you try to you know warn the citizens and the industries that we might not get through this winter without massive cuts. Trying to keep an alliance together is it a good thing to that the that you've got this remarkable alliance? And I, you know, from my point of view, thank God for Uncle Joe because you know if Uncle Joe hadn't been there, I cannot see. And I was at a conference in Poland uh, near the Belarus border the other uh, just last week and talking to the Poles and the Ukrainians there, I just cannot see that the world would have responded in the same way. And once that decision is made, that we are going to defend the democracy and the integrity of Ukraine, there's massive costs for that. And uh, uh, those costs are being felt by consumers. Uh, obviously, they're being mainly felt by the poor Ukrainian uh, people and their uh, brave soldiers. Okay, so that is the end of episode one. We're going to 
I'm going to pause it right there with uh, the end of John Grogan explaining that um, the you know we're transitioning from talking about energy and we're talking about the war um, and the war in Ukraine, and he's talking about the support that uh, that the the U.S. and and particularly Biden has been giving to the war and how important it is to have this war effort now. The next conversation we're going to have um, is a continuation of this, where we're talking about the war in Ukraine and everything going on. It gets a little political. It is it is very interesting. But I want to say thank you guys so much for listening. Um, this is part one uh, with John Grogan. We're taking a pause right here just because the conversation was a little lengthy, and I really uh, hope listeners take a listen. So thank you so much. Bye.